Here's a little fun fact. Did you know that for over five years, I taught thousands of people at hundreds of different events, both in person and online, how to grow their businesses. And I did this for Google. And now I want to do it for you. I'm offering up some special complimentary coaching opportunities for a few lucky wise squirrels. Visit wisequirrels.com slash coaching. Welcome to Wise Squirrels, the podcast for late-diagnosed adults with ADHD. I'm your host, Dave Delaney. A quick reminder today, as always, the content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I'm not a medical professional, so always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider regarding any medical condition, including ADHD, of course. Reliance on any information provided by this podcast is solely at your own risk, so go talk to your doctor. My guest today is Dr. Russell Ramsey, who is a psychologist specializing in the assessment and psychosocial treatment of ADHD. He has a solo virtual psychology practice that you can find at cbt4adhd.com. And Dr. Russ has an impressive background. He's a PhD. He's a retired professor from the University of Pennsylvania. He co-founded the Adult ADHD Treatment and Research Program there, and he was a professor of clinical psychology. Dr. Ramsey is a board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He's a diplomate of the Academy of Cognitive and Behavioral Therapies, and he's an expert in adult ADHD, so I'm very happy to be chatting with him today. He has authored five books on adult ADHD, including Rethinking Adult ADHD and the Adult ADHD Toolkit. Dr. Ramsey's work has also been translated into multiple languages and is recommended by the ABCT. He's received awards for teaching and research excellence and is in the Chad Hall of Fame as well. And Dr. Ramsey's contributions to adult ADHD assessments and psychosocial treatment continue, as I mentioned, in his virtual solo practice that I encourage you to check out as well. Before I jump into the interview, I did want to share a quick thank you note to everybody at the Mental Health Marketing Conference in Nashville. Uh, I was there to speak and deliver the Root Down, which is my brand new keynote presentation that I've been plugging on this show. So I won't talk about that, but I did want to say thank you to everybody. We had a small but mighty turnout and I was thrilled with the feedback. So if you are here because we met at the conference, leave a comment, say hello, reach out, don't be shy. I am always open and excited to meet new friends, especially new wise squirrels and new allies of wise squirrels as well. Okay, let's get on with the show. I've been excited, obviously, to have you on the show. And, you know, you've done, uh, you've written, what, five, five books? Is that right? Yeah, five books. I count, we, it's the first and second edition of the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Adult ADHD. So I count that as two because it was really a big overhaul. So mm. yeah, so it's going to be number six coming out in May. Yeah, congratulations, by the way. That's a huge under, like a huge undertaking. Um, just, yeah, the the whole, just the, I've written a book myself and it, and it was, uh, 
it was pre-diagnosis uh, with ADHD, so naturally mm. it was not the not the easiest thing uh, right, right. <laughs> I ever did. But yeah, let's talk about let's talk about your background a little bit first. Like, what got you? Obviously, you're a licensed psychologist. Uh, so, tell me a little bit about your background and what got you interested in sort of that ADHD space. You know what? I started at Penn as a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Cognitive Therapy back in 1995, and ADHD was not on my radar screen. It wasn't until I was approached by Dr. Tony Rostein, the co-founder and for a long time co-director of the program, approached me about the possibility. He said he could handle the medication side, but it would seem like some sort of psychosocial treatment would be useful. And... We we hit it off, and it's been a great collaboration over the years. We both left Penn since then, uh, but you know, it's probably some of the best work we ever did, and that's how I got into adult ADHD. I like to say I'm dispositionally lazy, and there was very little literature to review at the time, so I got in on the cheap. Um, but, but hopefully, yeah, over time developed like some assessment protocols. We and others, uh, colleagues around the world, independently were focused on cognitive behavioral therapy for adult ADHD, which is now viewed as an evidence-supported treatment, uh, yeah. psychosocial treatment for adult ADHD. That's, yeah, it's amazing. What, what were some of the, the insights into that, the program's achievements that you were doing at Penn um, you know, during your tenure there? Well, like I said, I think we and other programs are doing the same thing coming because the diagnosis is difficult. Hmm. Even doing it for a long time, many of the ADHD symptoms are nonspecific. The example I use is like in a general medical practice, like a fever. You go to your doctor with a fever. It could be the flu. It could be an infection. It could be malaria. And just like inattention um, is pretty ubiquitous in depression, anxiety, and other things. So, you know focusing on how do you sit with people and figure out whether it's ADHD or not, in addition to the fellow travelers like depression and anxiety that can go along with ADHD. But, you know, hopefully if there's any lasting thing, it's um, the modification of cognitive behavioral therapy for adult ADHD. Like I said, uh, we have many, you know, colleagues who are also friends around the world who are working on the same thing. And mm -hmm. when we get together and talk about it and present together, we agree we're pretty much all circling around the same thing. But I think we would all agree the name of the game, there's no trade secrets. It's more about the implementation. So I think that's something like helping adults with ADHD. And I think that was also um, the executive functioning model, the self-regulation model of ADHD helps with the assessment mm. as well as the treat as well as the treatment. And people like Tom Tom Brown, Russ Barkley, and others were leaders in um, identifying that and popularizing that. But it's but it's also backed up by um, research as well. Yeah, it's been an interesting. Uh, time for me discovering, you know, learning obviously about ADHD for myself, but also, you know, learn like w watching a lot of presentations and, and learning about, you know, experts in the field like yourself. Um, I think of, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, Dr. Russ uh, Barkley. I, I I know there was like an uh, there was a an event where I, I guess it was at the probably the Chad Ada uh, conference where. 
I, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but my understanding was that Russell Barkley and Dr. Ned Hallwell were kind of on stage and, and, you know, Ned is sort of this kind of teddy bear. Uh, I, I mean, with all due respect to both of them right, and, right, and then, right. and then Dr. Barkley is more like a curmudgeon, like kind of straight from the, you know, shooting from the hips kind of guy. And, and, but they both kind of came to this consensus, you know, that I think the question was, is ADHD a good thing or a bad thing? And I think they they came to the consensus that like if it's treated properly, it could be a good thing. Um, and if it's not treated at all or not treated well, uh, right. then it could be a bad thing. What are your what are your thoughts on that take? I mean, that's that sums it up. I, I mean, when you think about it, and some of this comes from the work of Barkley and Brown and others, but um, the executive functions helped early humans work and play well together with other early humans. And it had a survival um, benefit to doing that, working together, we're better together, if you will. Mm. The executive functions allow us to adapt to our surroundings. And so how I phrased it, one of the frustrations expressed by many adults with ADHD is the consistent inconsistency. I know I can do it, I've done it before, but I'm not 100% sure I'm gonna be able to make myself do it when I have to do it. And that can be maddening. If you know you can be a really good writer sometimes and you have another writing assignment, but you can't draw on that past experience to be able to get started now and have confidence that you'll be able to finish this essay or this report. So I think adults with ADHD might be particularly sensitive to contexts. There can be situations where somebody's a rock star. Adequate support checking in, hands-on stuff, or things with uh, clear objectives, what, whatever is the strong suit, but then you, you, you shake it up a little bit or twist it around a little bit, and then it's a, dump, a dumpster fire of difficulties. Mm. So I, I think, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it sounds like the, clinical, uh, the clinician cop-out answer, it depends, but I think with ADHD, especially, uh, especially adults with ADHD, very sensitive to um, surroundings and can do quite well with supports and you know following in, uh, following interests and passions, but there can be some other have to things that can really you know undermine them. And you mentioned so it's, a, it's a little bit of both. Yeah, you you mentioned one thing there that stood out to me about kind of helping people get started. You know, they know what they need to do, right? Uh, but they're not getting started. Are there are there tips or or you know uh, any any ideas there on uh, on how to nudge somebody to get started, to get the thing, or get it done, or get it started at least. Yeah, I mean. I'm asking for my wife, by the way. Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> what, what's the old psychiatrist joke? I have a friend. Um, <laughs> right, air quotes, yes. Yeah, exactly. No, you know what? Um, one, one of the things I found helpful, there's a particular type of procrastination called procrastivity. I did not invent the word. It's been mm -hmm. out there. If you can trust Urban Dictionary, it's been around since 2010. Mm. But it's how the example I use, you're working on taxes or doing something else that you just really hate doing. All of a sudden, you're magically motivated to mow the lawn, clean up the kitchen, do something else that you might have been procrastinating on for the past week. But compared with the more difficult tasks, now you can get it done. <laughs> and, and I took a look at some of those tasks and reverse engineered it pretty much and said, what is it about those tasks that at that moment make them preferable? And are there any tips in there? 
So the tasks tend to be more hands-on or manual, that you can touch it, it's physical. Mm. So if we do that with something we're avoiding, now something like doing taxes or writing uh, an essay or a report, those are still very cognitive tasks. But if we can make the getting started, like going to a workstation, like sitting down at a desk, logging on, opening up the, the spreadsheet or the, the document on the computer, um, walking into the kitchen and opening the dishwasher door, we could stop there and still procrastinate. But that that's like one small tip that comes from that. The other things are pre-commitment, having a specified day and time that you're going, you intend to do the task. That's realistic because mm. um, that specificity seems to be helpful. And also some sort of task bounding. I'm going to work on this for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or I'm going to write at least 100 words, whatever you, however you frame it, so you view it as doable. And that answer might be different for you than it is for me, but getting it to the point where you go, well, yeah, I can at least do this. And the very fact, or the very process, I should say, of going through these steps and thinking them through, maybe writing them out, it's, it's also, we could call it cognitive exposure. It makes you still think about the task rather than escaping it and, and escaping into action by doing something else. And the, all these things, um, they're like swing votes, increasing the likelihood that you're going to get started on the task. The relapse rate for um, procrastination is 100%. We will do it, and not all being off-task um, times are necessarily procrastination. Sometimes it might be, tell you what, I don't feel like doing this because I'm really tired. I need a break. I've been you know, doing a lot of work already today. Mm. Um, there's a step I, knew I need to do before I start writing the report of gathering data, something. Those are not procrastination. There are things that still have to be done, um, but going back to the end, and also when we're when you're planning to do something, spending a moment or two for what I call the valuation of it. Why do I want to do this in the first place? Uh-huh. What's in it for me? What about this might I be underestimating in myself? Hey, I'm, I'm a good writer when I get down to do it. But it can also be something like, I just don't want to have to think about this after today. And that's, that's motivation too. But a couple of these steps, these can sort of, they're like swing votes in Congress where it nudges it, where we might be a little more likely to... Um, get started a little earlier than we would otherwise. And for God's sake, vote, <laughs> right? Uh, yes, obviously. Yes, yes. <laughs> both, both politically speaking, but also uh, as a new American myself, I just uh, became an American citizen uh, oh. just a, a few weeks ago. Yeah, thank you from uh, Canada originally. Oh, yes, my home and native but, uh, land. My, fa- my father's side of the family, well, originally Scotland, but they were Canadian and both went to the University of Toronto. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, we just yes. did a tour of UT with my son, or UFT, I should say. Um, and uh, yeah, so he may be getting back to, both my kids are being raised here in Nashville, uh, but both were born in Toronto. So um, yeah, who knows? We'll, we'll see what happens there. What part of Scotland? Um, it was a small place called Nairn, or but I've also heard it pronounced as Narn, okay. N-A-I-R-N, at least to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's where they're from, but yeah. 
I lived in Edinburgh for about a year and, uh, oh, and took my, uh, we took the family, the kids and my wife. Uh, we all went back. My wife and I both lived in Edinburgh together. Um, so we, we brought the kids last year and, and gave them the grand tour of Scotland and went up to the Highlands and Isle of oh, Skye. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I, I had a good chance to go to Glasgow a couple times. Once the World Federation Congress of ADHD was there back in 2015. Nice. Um, and then the family went there. And yeah, we visited Edinburgh, uh, Glasgow and the Highlands. It's lovely. Yeah, it's 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 a yeah, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Um, uh, it's interesting that so you you mentioned uh, being in Scotland for that conference. I've I've had some conversations with some you know uh, uh, you know doctors and uh, coaches and things about culture and how it plays out as it pertains to ADHD. Now, obviously, uh, ADHD is is blind to uh, our upbringings and our backgrounds and such, but um, you know some cultures are less uh, quick to diagnose people and maybe even any, anything for that matter, uh, certainly with any kind of like psychotherapy or, you know, things like that. Um, is that something you've come across and, you know, with different, different cultures, different, uh, people, backgrounds, faiths, all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, you could go with the culture of within a family where one parent sees the benefit of medications and somebody else is skeptical about it. Mm. Um, you know, cross-culturally, some of the different rates. I mean, they'll they'll generally cluster around similar prevalence rates for ADHD. But you'll have some like I remember one study where like uh, I think there were much ro- lower rates of ADHD in Italy. Hmm. Um, there there can also be you know various differences in terms of you know how do you define a diagnosis how do you define a symptom or a behavioral problem that needs help who do you go out to different communities you know black americans can be very skeptical of some of the medical professions and mm-hmm. rightfully so based on some past history yeah um and and also different groups have different avenues of seeking help some some groups that might be more faith-based first it could be the family doctor um and you know others might rely on the family and not want to go outside the family. So there are a lot of individual differences, but I think as you alluded to, even um, with all these um, group differences, the numbers don't lie. Wherever there's a human brain, there's going to be, you know, the the possibility of, you know, a, a prevalence of ADHD. And we could say the same about depression or anxiety, even though there might be differences in how different groups uh, define these and define seeking help. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of thinking along the lines of like the the uh, blue zones, uh, you know, study and or studies about like longevity, like healthy longevity, and and you know, kind of narrowing down what these different groups have in common as far as diet and and you know lifestyle mm. and you know, social circles, things like that. Um, so I suppose there. Th- yeah, there isn't really, I mean, ADHD is ADHD. It's just like our operating system, is it not? Well, that's a way to think about it. In a way, like if we think about it as an executive functioning problem. Now, even using executive functions, you know, if we broaden that, we think about it as a self-regulation problem. And there are other facets of self-regulation outside of or overlapping with or like Jeff Newcorn, uh, Dr. Jeff Newcorn, I love the phrase he uses, interdigitating. Mm. Um, but they're around like, how efficiently do we do what we set out to do? Um, so on, on that front, that is 
a, a guiding system for most people, most humans. And I also think that this is why the problems of ADHD feel familiar to a lot of people who don't have ADHD and hence the myth. Doesn't everybody have ADHD or a little bit? Mm. And no, not really. Now it does fall on a continuum as a matter of degree. It's not like a hard, there's a hard marker between you got it or you don't. What, what I, I forget who said it, um, but he said, um, it's hard to tell when day turns into night, but it most decidedly happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how it is with ADHD. Where do you draw the diagnostic line? But it's usually clinically, we're looking at functional status. Is this getting in the way of your life? And if it's like sub-threshold or mild, but still causing problems, well, then it's it's worthy of treatment. But going back to this is where it, I think it is a core feature or like the executive functions to self-regulation is a part of our factory settings, if you will. Mm. Um, so um, it that's, and like I said, I think that's why some people might have a hard time understanding it or thinking that everybody has it when in fact, no, not really. Are there estimates? I mean, there. I know there are estimates. Um, and the last I saw, I think, was like 20% of people with ADHD don't know they have ADHD. Are there like more up-to-date or, or more accurate numbers that we can go with? I know like it's 5% of Americans or up to 5%, which is 8 million and 20% of adults uh, don't know they have it. Is, is that... Does that resonate with you or? Yeah, I I think, you know what, actually, I might have heard it maybe flipped a little bit where Mm. there might be um, a a somewhat higher rate of unidentified ADHD in adults or untreated. Yeah. Um, Even though I think there's been some correction since the pandemic and things like that and and greater emphasis on um, mental health and increased access during the pandemic, which hopefully with uh, remote treatment will persist uh, well beyond it. Um, but I, yeah, I think generally we're still talking about, you know, some of the numbers, probably the adult numbers are going up a little bit, but you know, still within that like three to seven range, mm. but also because we spend more time in adulthood. So in some ways there's gonna be, you know, more, we spend more time in adulthood than in childhood. So, you know, there's probably gonna be some more, you know, more later identified you know, individuals there. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's still an underrepresentation in terms of people who could benefit from specialized treatment. Oh yeah. Now that I know I have ADHD so often, like I'm like, I've said this on the show before, but like I'm at the grocery store checking out and I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, this clerk totally has ADHD. Uh, <laughs> like I see it everywhere. Not to say that I'm like missing or, or even trying to diagnose somebody, but you know, I'm, I'm like seeing things that, kind of resonate with me that way that I think like, huh, I wonder, I wonder if this person, and I, I did read too, that there was an uptick in diagnosis, especially during the pandemic, because, you know, and you touched on that a little bit, like more people were working from home. And so if you're, if one of your kids or your kids have ADHD and you're working from home and you're with them all the time, you start seeing, oh, wait a minute. Uh, you know, you start seeing some of these traits in yourself or that just the change of, scenery or your office space, you know, completely throws you off from, from working from home or more people are spending more time on social media and, and, you know, 
watching TikTok videos, God forbid, um, and and you know learning about it that way. Uh, so it's yeah, it's interesting. Well, you know what? And when we think about self-regulation, we we sometimes overemphasize the self, even though that's part of it. But things like the structure of getting up and going to the office, that that creates some self-regulation. When you're at the office, you're physically protected. I mean, we always got our phones with us, but from some of the distractions at home or getting up and going to school or going to campus and then having access to the campus library, just getting ourselves to certain places. If you've ever woken up with to an alarm that you set, that's self-regulation or set something by the door so you didn't take forget to take it with you. Mm-hmm. That's self-regulation. On the topic of self-regulation, I think about well, uh, you know, obviously with addiction, that that in my understanding is that's a big problem for folks with ADHD. Can you explain that a little bit? I know it's to do with the lack of dopamine, right? That can be part of it. There can be many causes. There is the self-medication hypothesis that it is an effort at self-soothing, um, and with different medication. Uh, I'm sorry, different substances having different effects. Um, it can be. Perhaps, you know, talking about sensitivity to context, maybe being around others who are um, using and upwards of abusing, you know, substances where it becomes part of that subculture, if you will. Mm. Um, There can be, you know, simply the genetic uh, predisposition towards addiction or some combination thereof. Um, that can in, you know, lead to that increased risk factor. Now, I know some recent studies have shown that because there's some concerns about um, the medications, often the stimulants used for medications, but there were some recent, uh, recently published studies. One, which, one was tracking high schoolers into young adulthood who were taking, they were on prescribed stimulant regimens for ADHD. And another, I think, was a cross-section of adults with ADHD. And both studies using different methodologies found that um, taking prescribed stimulant medications does not increase the risk for um, addictions beyond the population risk. You're at no greater risk than anybody else in the population. Mm. Um, and, and also, it would seem like if we're effectively treating ADHD, that that should re- reduce the risk for it. Maybe not eliminate it. You know, that's, that's the things being a clinician. You'll always see the outliers, mm-hmm. but it, it should you know, greatly, um, it would seem like greatly reduce that risk. And, and or also be a benefit for people try- in recovery or trying to reduce their substance use. Yeah, so I quit drinking three years ago and I quit smoking cigarettes like 20 some odd years ago. And, but certainly when I was younger, I would smoke like a chimney. I'd finish a pack in the, you know, uh, and I would drink like a fish often. Um, also knowing my own limitations. For example, my father uh, was a pretty heavy drinker, but would drink uh, like scotch whiskey. And so mm. I knew better to tend to avoid such alcohol so i would drink beer and as far Mm -hmm. as like drugs were concerned like uh i did know people who got into some pretty serious drugs and i always avoided those drugs because i knew i had a tendency to kind of be excessive with things and so it's interesting reflecting on this and you know part of it too and, and i guess the question here is maybe in the studies you've done or in in the patients you've had when 
somebody is diagnosed with ADHD later in life, and this is something I'm experiencing, I'm often wondering, I'm not reflecting on the past too much because I know that can get to bad places and, and that's not my intention. But I do think a lot, like for example, I'm a very funny person usually, I promise. Um, <laughs> and you know, I've, 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 I'm quite, you know, the life of the party, quite humorous and, and, and things like that. Um, but I think sometimes like maybe I was being really funny as a kid, um, certainly the class clown because I couldn't sit still or because, you know, for, and so it starts to make me wonder like how much of my personality is because of ADHD or, or non, uh, undiagnosed ADHD versus like, it's just Dave. Well, you know what, like, how do we, uh, this is a question Tony Rostin and I would bounce back and forth, um, how do you differentiate like ADHD and the executive functions from personality? Because we're talking about some of the more persistent parts of oneself um, and interacting and dealing with a, a variety of individuals and contexts and bringing that back to, you know, if, you, if we think about humor, it's being able to see things in a different way. Um, and, and also if things are boring and you can make them funny and get a laugh out of it, that's a way to pay attention and sort of self-stimulate oneself, um, and make something, you know, being able to sustain attention by looking for or thinking about a wisecrack or, you know, stay engaged in some way. So it is an effort after attention in a way. Now, can it get you in trouble? Sure. And are there times it's really, you know, you could say somebody, anybody could say the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person? Absolutely. But yeah, that's, that's one of those things to consider. Um, and, and ways that, for lack of a better phrase, somebody could take their, like, for lack of a better phrase, ADHD personality or these predispositions and also find a way to hone it and make it work for them. Yeah, because I go through periods, you know, I work for myself, I'm an entrepreneur and I have my own business and I do a lot of public speaking for my, for my business, things like that. But now that I've been diagnosed, like ask me what executive functions were last year, I had never even heard of them. And now I'm, I'm not, I can't say I'm obsessing about this, but I did launch this podcast and Wise Squirrel's <laughs> website. Um, right. I, and now I, I tend to find that I'm sometimes I feel like if I hadn't, if I didn't know about my diagnosis, I'd be in better shape. And that's probably, I'm sure that's wrong, but I don't know. It's just part of the struggle, I guess, of being diagnosed kind of late in life. Yeah. And I know that ADHD is one of those diagnoses and, and it, it can lead in some ways to it being minimized, um, that it's viewed as, for lack of a better phrase, quaint or a nuisance or, you know, hey, it's my ADHD. It's sort of, it's almost like a brand name like Kleenex or Xerox that mm -hmm. is used and it sort of loses its, loses its uh, meaning or its credibility for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the we want to be careful with labels, but you know, ADHD is one of those. If if it's being thought of as there, there is a I don't think style is the right word, or maybe a temperament that goes along with it. Um, now again, there's a lot of diversity within uh, people that share the diagnosis of ADHD, 
but if it's viewed more as like cognitive predispositions that have some challenges that come with it, but also um, some predispositions that in the right setting with the right people, with the right encouragement, can, you know, support people and doing wonderful things. And like you launching a podcast based on your curiosity about it, once you got the diagnosis, I mean, it's, that's, that's part of the, the, cl- the clinical craft, if you will, coming from it as I do as a psychologist is helping people, you know, find their way to that. And like a line I used, um, you know, several times, there's the idea of rehabilitation. How do you get yourself back to a previous level of functioning? Like if you have a knee injury or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's also within, I think that literature, what's called habilitation, you know, take the RE off and just habilitation, which is making the best out of what you got. And I've not yet found this word. So this one, I'll take credit for an inventing, but somebody uh-huh. can prove me wrong and I'm happy to give credit where credit's due. Uh-huh. But sometimes at its best, um, you know, me being a therapist, you know, how therapy, but combined with medications or whatever works, we're looking at abilitations. What are some of the abilities that uh, previously undiagnosed ADHD might have covered up or interfered with? And these difficulties can also take the form of self-doubt, self-criticisms and avoidance, assuming one can't do something and maybe re-explore some of these new opportunities or old opportunities, pick them up again um, now that there's the understanding of ADHD and how one's brain works, um, so that sort of habilitation of, hey, let me try this again, or this thing that I thought I couldn't do, let me give it an honest try and at least find out by trying and sometimes being able to do things and assume roles that people thought they, they couldn't. Yeah, I sometimes think for my own business that like if I found a co-founder who was like, quote unquote, neurotypical, like we'd be like, uh, you know, forced to be reckoned with. <laughs> but that that's like one of those things, like finding partnerships and, and yeah. I I without geeking out more than I have, there's there's some like research collaborators who they go, Hey, this person's really great at the theory, I'm great at the methodology. It's sort of like the old Reese's peanut butter cup commercials mm-hmm. where you'd see somebody walking down the tr- street eating a chocolate bar, somebody walking down the street for some reason with an open jar of peanut butter and they would run into each other. And they'd say, you got peanut butter on my chocolate, you got chocolate on my peanut butter. But the tagline for the peanut butter cups was two great tastes that taste great together. Yes, yes. And how many times have that happened to me with the peanut butter? Every day. Somebody's running into me with an open jar of peanut butter, yes. I think they're only running because there's bees all around them trying to... uh, Right, right, right. That's right. Tell me a little bit. Instead of looking at their phones, they're looking at their edible, whatever they're eating, walking down the street. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, by the way, speaking of edibles, CBT, obviously, Uh what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on that, uh, that new confusion? I tell you what, you want, you want to get a lot of hits, like just misspell it and say, Dr. Ramsey's talking about CBD for ADHD. Yeah. Um, (laughs) no, people get really excited when they mishear that. You know what? Um, to date, I'll make it simple. I'm not aware of any compelling evidence that it's helpful. Hmm. Um, some people will use it, uh, like uh, you know, smoking marijuana or using edibles or something, trying to reduce anxiety or you know, uh, be able to fall asleep, quiet their mind. And I'm not going to tell anybody it's not working, but um, it, it may not be directly treating ADHD. It might be some of the side effects, you know, and. There's, there is some evidence um, in some very specific cases of particular 
types of anxiety um, or other medical conditions where various um, forms of cannabis, uh, and I know there's many differences that are beyond me without checking notes, but um, in terms of helping ADHD, there's no at least existing credible evidence. There might be studies ongoing. I think it should be studied, but um, if nothing else, it may actually interfere or make ADHD worse and particularly for teenagers yeah but but these and like the question we don't know about psychedelics and but you know there hopefully there's going to be some uh, randomized um studies about you know safety and tolerability and seeing what works and how if it does work yeah because i almost think with like anxiety uh and and you know in my totally novice mind here but i, I i'm almost thinking like if one was to if they were to turn to like say weed to help them with anxiety but they have adhd then that could not to say that weed is addictive but you know different habits can be addicting at least and you don't want to be turning to pot you don't want to be like seth rogan or unless i mean he's very successful don't it may be a bad example sure 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 uh but you know you don't want to be just like a a pothead basically well it becomes it becomes a behavioral habit it becomes associated with if i do this then i can fall asleep yes i'll share i'm a coffee drinker me too and it becomes associated with when when i have work to do i'll start fix going to fix a cup of coffee even if i catch myself because it's part of the behavioral script and this is another one of these things that we can use you know part of that making the task manual to get started it could be i'm going to get to where i do work and that might be the library or when i'm writing working on a writing task i'll go to a coffee shop near me so it can become part of this routine just like hopefully flossing becomes part of our brushing routine um but you know the other thing and this is I'm not sure if there's evidence to support this, but anecdotally, like the day after smoking marijuana, I've I've heard you know enough people say to me that they suffer from a motivational syndrome. Mm. Now these might be idiosyncratic. I like on the other hand, I don't want to oversell something, but um, you know th- this is where clinical practice. You look at the individual. Just like not everybody responds to prescribed stimulants who has ADHD, even though we know the general research is that they're quite beneficial, but there's going to be the people within those samples who don't respond and need other sorts of treatments and supports. Yeah. And you'll have to excuse me for not reading your book, Rethinking Adult ADHD, but um, tell me a little bit about the... Well, it's only you and and like 10 million other people. So it's really a small who haven't read it yet. (laughs) There's even more who haven't read my book, so don't feel too (laughs) bad. Um, But yeah, tell me a little bit about some of the the key kind of takeaways from the book about rethinking this? Well, you know, the main takeaway, the main reason I did it, um, it was answering, it was published in 2022. It actually came out like December 2019, but 2022, I mean, 2020 copyright. And it was really a more than a decade long in the coming answer to a question I was asked in a conference in 2002, which was what is the cognitive theme of adult ADHD. So within cognitive behavioral therapy, different diagnoses or different conditions, if you will, um, they might share some of the same distorted thought categories like all or nothing thinking or uh, negative fortune telling, but there's gonna be different themes. Like for depression, a common theme is loss, loss of opportunity, loss of esteem. With anxiety, it was typically the assessment of risk and maybe the, the overestimation of risk. 
and even more recently and more relevant to adult ADHD, and this is part of the forthcoming book, um, the issue of intolerance of uncertainty um, that goes along with anxiety. And I make the case in the forthcoming book that ADHD is an uncertainty generator. I know I can do it, but I'm not sure if I, if I will when I have to. Mm. So, it, you know, running through it, um, it was part of taking a look at the cognitions, emphasizing the cognitions with ADHD and the role they play in procrastination and other things. But I guess the main takeaway that I wanted to achieve with it was I concluded that, and this is anecdotal, this has not been studied, even though some colleagues have said they might look at it, but my contention is, and based on some clinical experience, and that the main cognitive theme in adult ADHD is self-mistrust. I know I can do it, but I don't trust myself that I will be able to do it when I have to do it. Hmm. Similar to what I said before, I've done it before. I know I can do it. It's not lack of capacity for doing it, but I don't know if I'll be able to get myself to do it when I set out to do it or have to do it. And that consistent inconsistency, the consistent uncertainty, that is stressful and frustrating. Um, and that part of at least the cognitive work is building up increased self-confidence and trust in addition to other things. But if we're talking about the central themes, now it's not done in isolation. It comes from actually facing and doing things, the implementation of coping skills, increasingly being able to get engaged and get started with what we want to do and make progress and reach a point of completion. And you know, throughout that, this is very important too, the personalization, it's not one size fits all. What works for you might not work for me, might not work for somebody else, but uh, elsewhere I've used the analogy, they're like recipes that people then adjust and season to their own taste. So there might be some general principles in there, but what works and what is, tastes good for one person will not for the other person, but it's a, it's a good starting point in terms of helping people getting to where they wanna go. Yeah, and I, I can certainly attest to the to the feelings of self mistrust. I haven't thought about it worded that way, but yeah, you you kind of nailed it there. Um, yeah, no, that's that's great. What are some misconceptions that people find, uh, you know, when it comes to ADHD? I still there. I think still think there's some myths that um, everybody has it, which is a bit of, a, a bit of a dismissal of it. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, one of the ones we still hear is if you can, it's setting up some condition. If you got through high school, you can't have ADHD. If you got through college, you can't have ADHD. If you've been working at this job for more than five years, you can't have ADHD. You're too smart to have ADHD. You're too accomplished to have ADHD. And there, there is solid literature. Now, ADHD is not... Um, a measure of intelligence. Now, some facets here and there of executive uh, functioning difficulties can affect some subtests on intelligence scales like working memory task or speed of processing task, but they are different. But some studies have looked at high IQ individuals who also report um, significant executive functioning problems. Some of the work of Tom Brown and um, you know some Yes, Kevin Antschol have identified like ADHD and high functioning, high achieving individuals. So, again, wherever there's a human brain, um, there can be you know these sorts of executive functioning, you know, difficulties. I think you know one of the other myths I've referred to is that um, 
the the stimulants are scary. Now there are medications, and take but taken as prescribed, they're among the more effective. And I'm a psychologist; I can't prescribe, but based on the research, they're among the safest we have. Like I mentioned, the recent studies saying that um, being on a a decently um, persistent and um, monitored dose of stimulant medications for ADHD does not increase the risk of addiction. There's no greater risk for addiction than anybody walking around in the general population. Mm. Um, so there's, you know, there's still a lot of those things out there. Um, and you know, I, even going back to, to something I'd mentioned before, and we were talking about um, the increased numbers of the diagnosis that can lead people thinking about, oh my gosh, it's everywhere, everyone has it. We're probably really talking about a correction based on the, the studies I think we both mentioned before of that there are probably a majority of people, you know, based on the prevalence rates, probably many more people walking around with unidentified ADHD mm. um, that have not yet um, been identified and not yet received you know, specialized treatment. Mm. And, and that's, that's another thing. There are um, competent treatment, pro, uh, treatment assessment protocols out there that can be used, uh, especially for establishing the initial diagnosis of ADHD published by Margaret Sibley, whose work I really admire. Um, and you know, getting a a competent evaluation with a trained a, a professional familiar with ADHD. Yeah, one of the I had a conversation with someone a while back, a doctor, and uh, he expressed the uh, annoyance uh, or, or frustration in in sort of the process of being medicated. So I personally am, am medicated, and. Um, uh, I'm on, I guess, my sixth month, I think. And I started on one medication, did it for a couple months, changed the dose, uh, had some weird side effects, so switched to medic a different medication, um, and then have just this month actually reduced the dose because of some, some side effects. Nothing scary or terrible, um, but you know, I don't want to scare people um, because I do think it is important to do this, but his his concerns or frustration was in uh, what he explained was that back at some point you would be diagnosed with something you know like a low dose, and after a week you'd see your doctor talk about it and then maybe increase that dose by a little, and then the next week follow up with your doctor and you know kind of rinse and repeat. And because of insurance companies and the way this all plays out now. You basically get diagnosed, or you you get medic uh, prescribed something for thirty days, and then you know you might get a consult with your doctor, or you might just have to follow up and say like this, don't like this, um, and then change. So, what are your thoughts on like the best? Um, again, you're not. I, I realize you're not prescribing, but in your studies and experiences, is there validity to this? Like, should I mean, would it be better to to have more frequent updates? And, and maybe more frequent changes in the dose? Uh, depends on the medication, because there are some non-stimulant medications that might take longer to become active and to notice the changes. But um, working with a lot of psychiatrists, um, now this is a guideline, so don't take it literally. Yeah. Um, but you know, one of the ideas is, because many people, if they're responders, um, you know, adults with ADHD prescribed a stimulant, they'll 
notice things the first couple days, the first week. And then the thought is, okay, we're seeing it's working. Let's increase the dose a little bit. Sort of what you outlined there. Yeah. And this is this would be the, the going, I wouldn't even call it a guideline. It's sort of like, like one of these rules of thumb. You increase you know, within the safety limits, but you increase until you hit side effects. Mm-hmm. And then you, tape, you taper back a step. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way you can optimize the dose because a certain, let's just say, you know, not, not talking about a specific medication, but let's just say 10 milligrams works really well, but you know, maybe 15 or 20 works better. And we're not, it's not sort of like, oh, if we can get you up to 20, you can work for 20 hours a day and focus. No, we're talking about functioning, including things like driving safety, being able to read to your children and focus on things like that. Mm. So um, there is there is something for that tweaking or if something's not working, being able to change quicker rather than having to wait 30 days. Now, very often, you know, even within the 30-day um, limits, if you will, um, there there might be ways that a psychiatrist works with somebody to, you know, sort of make changes within their, mm. you know, all, all legal and within, you know, all the uh, appropriate, you know, professional standards, but to work, to, to work within some of those insurance limitations to still um, deliver good care. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, I know uh, I'm being mindful of the time here, and I know you have a hard stop. Do you have any quick tips for like better knowing yourself or understanding yourself, and then respecting yourself, and then connecting yourself, finding community, finding people to connect with? Um, so know yourself, respect yourself, connect yourself. Any thoughts or tips around those three categories? You know what I I would say. Monitor your thoughts and feelings, and even the unpleasant ones or negative ones, look for the element of what might be positive about them. Now, maybe they're, they're experienced at too severe a level, like guilt and shame, but even if we dial guilt back to say maybe 3% of that is, all right, this is me taking responsibility for myself. So even though this feeling is unpleasant, now I shouldn't be experiencing... 90% guilt because I came, showed up at my dentist's office on the wrong date. But part of this is, all right, that reaction is me taking responsibility for myself. So that's a positive, but I want to dial back the guilt and okay. And this could be a related principle for knowing yourself or, or dealing with um, the knowledge of yourself is then keep these slip ups, make them behavioral, not personal okay, I, I wrote the wrong month in my planner or I in my Google calendar. The other part of knowing yourself is, yeah, how do you make sense of things? What are your reactions? How do you think about what happened? How does that make you think about yourself? Yeah, you probably know one of the early, uh, if not one of the earliest um, popular books on adult ADHD was entitled, You Mean I'm Not Lazy, Stupid, or Crazy? Mm-hmm. Because that tended to be the attributions of and still to this day, the attributions of adults with ADHD. So question those. They may be coming from a good place. You know what? I'm, I want to get started earlier on these things. Um, so knowing how you're hard on yourself. And also a, a nice flip on that is, and it's one of my favorite, is perspective taking. If somebody I knew with ADHD, this happened to them and they had this thought. Would I agree with them? But how would I talk them how would I talk them back from that? Mm. Still, I mean, you can still be honest about slip-ups, 
but that what I mentioned about keeping it behavioral, because if it's behavioral, then we can correct it and, and change behaviors rather than saying I'm lazy, stupid, or crazy. It's hard to change character flaws. So I'm not sure if that maps yeah. on everything, but, but with that, you know what, it is, you know, finding people who are willing to be understanding, whether you share ADHD with them or not, um, but willing to be understanding um, that, you know, there's a, a, a reciprocity back and forth. Um, and you mentioned the International Conference for ADHD. That's always a good venue. And there's many local chapters of Chad and ADA where they're offering opportunities for that sort of community. And you might look to join up there, some of those. Yeah, that's great. And I'll include links to everything we're talking about uh, here in the show notes for folks to, to check out. Um, with just a few minutes left, um, is there anything I didn't ask you about or anything you'd like to share that, that yeah, I didn't, I didn't bring up with you? No, I mean, uh, we covered that. And what you mentioned at the end about knowing yourself and connecting with others. No, I thought that that allowed me to bring up some of the stuff, uh, you know, about the how you think about yourself, um, you know, your relationship with your feelings. I mean, managing ADHD requires facing some discomfort, short term discomfort, but getting through it by engaging in what's important for you, what you value. And then once you get to the other side, it's like Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway paddling over the waves, yeah. but finally getting over them. Now, again, the the, uh, the example breaks down there because then he was alone in the middle of the ocean. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, sometimes if we should just shorten it up and saying, yeah, it's getting over that big intimidating wave. But when we're over, over that, you get smoother waters, which we know. Mm-hmm. But but that's the, the implementation issue with ADHD. So that's why... F- you know, valuing, you know, keeping in mind why you value what you're doing, even if it's just to get it done and you get over that wave and you just increase the likelihood of getting to the other side and building confidence through experience. And tell me a little bit about how folks can, you know, learn more about what you do. I know you switched uh, to uh, virtual uh, virtual sessions, right? Like, is it, right. You, I'm I'm not. I'm no longer at the University of Pennsylvania. I retired from the University of Pennsylvania, but I'm not retiring. <laughs> I'm not stopping by any stretch of the imagination. But I have a solo, completely virtual telepsychology practice. But if you're if you want to check things out, and I have uh, I'll recording some podcasts on there and other things. Um, the website is www. CBT number four ADHD.com and uh, the email there, my pen email still works if you track me down that way, but it's my last name, Ramsey, R A M S A Y. Make sure you get the A in there at CBT for ADHD.com. Yeah, this has been fantastic. So I, I really do appreciate you sharing your, your insights and smarts and encouragement. Uh, yeah, this has been great. Oh, great. Well, Dave, thanks for inviting me. You're a great interviewer. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Why Squirrels. I'm Dave Delaney. The music to the show is Unyielding Conditioning by the one and only Fishbone. And you can find that song and all of Fishbone's music wherever you stream music. We thank them for this. We love Fishbone. Are you a wise squirrel? Visit wisequirrels.com to find out. And let's keep the conversation going. I'll see you there.